Hello everyone uh, out there in the big wide world. Uh, welcome to the very first of uh, the, well, in association with, uh, with, with, uh, with BSC, the very first BAFTA Zoom Masterclass. As I said, in association with the BSC, um, we're here um, discussing a show that's just getting, getting going in its um, third exciting season on the TV right now with the first two seasons just picking up multiple nominations and wins, Golden Globes, Emmys, BAFTAs in all categories. Um, and we're talking about the cinematography with the two, uh, uh, well, two of the cinematographers involved of the BBC's Killing Eve. So welcome uh, uh, Julian Court, BSC and Tim Palmer, BSC. Good evening, hello. Good evening, Laurie, hello. Hello everybody. and welcome. Welcome and welcome to all of our friends out there. We've got lots of uh, participants. If you uh, look down in your little bottom bar there, uh, uh, yeah, Julian and Tim, you'll see that we've been, jo yeah. <laughs> been joined by a few people. So, um, let's kick off with uh, with with Julian. You're as um, as a lead DP on all three seasons of Killing Eve. How did you um, how did you first get involved, and what what drew you to the to the scripts? Um, well, the, how I got involved part was. Um, that I had a history with the production company Sid Gentle. I'd worked with them previously on the first series of a thing called The Durrells. And I'd worked with Lee Morris from that company um, earlier than that as well. Um, so they, I guess, had me as one of the people that they might be thinking about. But I'd also worked with the person who became the Block One director, um, Harry Bradbeer. And so I guess, you know, things were lining up in a good way. And I went through the usual process of an interview and so on, and was lucky enough to get the job. In terms of why I was attracted to it, um, that wasn't hard. Um, it, it was extraordinary from the moment you lifted the page, and that doesn't happen very often. We all read scripts, and sometimes they're great, sometimes they're less great. And occasionally they're just extraordinary, and Phoebe Waller-Bridge's writing was and is extraordinary. Um, it was just, I just, you know, I just thought, oh my God, I just have to... I have to get this job and uh, yeah it worked out that way. Fantastic. Um, she really does write, write up a storm and I've, um, I've worked mm. very briefly with her and, and it's just it leaps off the page it's amazing stuff. Um, she, um, she kind of sets it all up so vividly um, was she at all involved in setting up any of the production in terms of look or, or, or the kind of um, you, I mean I, I guess some um, of that's written into the script but just in the terms of the the um the, the contemporariness of it or the or, or any was there any of that design based in the writing i mean i would say absolutely yes i mean phoebe would have been across all parts of the process in ways that i probably didn't necessarily see until we were you know into the sort of later stages of prep and coming close to filming she was around quite often when we were filming also she made you know um, more than the usual number of set visits for a writer so she was very involved and she has a very close relationship with Harry, the director. They've worked on Fleabag together um, and they're good mates. And so, you know, that, that was a, a strong shorthand between them. But um, absolutely, you know, she had opinions and input in, in all areas. And I'd say just backtracking slightly, actually, about how the project came into being. Um, there was a very clever bit of thinking that went on at Sid Gentle between a team of people there who... Um, bought the rights to the novellas, um, which are little novellas about Villanelle, the character. And they were self-published, quite a small deal, I think. And how they came upon them, I don't know, but they saw 
they saw the potential and they then equally saw that they could put Phoebe Waller-Bridge together with that. And Phoebe at that time was not the well-known person she is now. And I think Fleabag was at that stage still a stage thing and hadn't become the TV series. So it was very, very clever. And, and it certainly worked. Um, and you said you'd worked with, um, you'd worked with Sigentle, the production company before. Had mm. you worked with, you, sorry, did you, had you worked with Harry before? Yes, I had. Right. Yes, I, yes, yes. so that was coincidentally, um, we, mm. we worked together before, so we knew each other well. Okay. Um, now you both worked together actually, didn't you? Uh, or I don't know if you did, but you sort of co-worked together um, way back on Ashes to Ashes. I think you probably shared, or you, yeah. you did shared episodes. Um, Tim, how did you, how did you come to get to be involved in in Killing Eve? Well, um, it was it would have been uh, primarily through the director that I worked with, John East, um, who directed Block Two. Uh, he and I have had a, a long, very creatively fulfilling working relationship over the years, starting back in 2013, end of 2013, we did a 13-part series called Critical, which is a medical drama for Sky. Um, and curiously enough, it was, all, it was all set in a white studio, but uh, John told me that I was one of, the, one of the gigs that got him the job, the directing job, and he couldn't understand why, because it didn't have, look anything like, um, Killing Eve at all, but I think it was, uh, I think he impressed them with his ability to extract something out of very little, <laughs> although it ended up being quite a lot. But no, I, got, I, I had a, in fact, I was going through my emails and um, of that year and, and I, I'd completely forgotten, but there was a, I received a rather cryptic email from John back in the spring. I, I was working out in America at the time and he said, might you be available in the summer? I might have something really fun to do. And I said, well, possibly yes. Um, but he couldn't say any more because clearly he didn't know whether he'd got the job yet by that point. But um, as soon as he did, then I was invited to read the scripts. And I did a, I was, as I said, I was working abroad. So it was a, um, a 4 a.m. for me Skype meeting. And the, the, actually the night, that night, I'd had to take the first AD to the emergency room because he'd got a fish hook through his finger. And uh, we didn't get out till, I didn't get out till two o'clock in the morning, went home, slept for an hour and got up for the Skype meeting with the UK. And I really thought that I'd probably messed it up terribly. But, they're always, yeah. they're always the best meetings. <laughs> they're always um, the best meetings under duress. But, uh, <laughs> but yes, John, it was really, I mean, it was John who, who, who brought me on board, but I'd, I'd worked with Colin Ratton, the producer before. And, and I'd worked with Sally Woodward Gentle, certainly when she was an executive at the BBC. So I think mm. they, they, they knew me and they knew me from Carnival as well. So, so how does that work? Because uh, uh, I don't, I've never, I've not, I've no experience with that. So how, how does it work in terms of being, being uh, the lead DP and then still involved? It's not like you're doing a block and kind of disappearing. How, how, is, how does that work with, um, with passing on show style and, um, uh, and, um, um, uh, and then you kind of supervising? I mean, even we can get onto that later, but then the grade, you know, does, is, everyone, is it all separated out or how, does that, yeah, how did that work I, for you, Julian? And did you have any experience of that before? Um, I've had some experience of it before. And what I would say is it, it's never the same journey every time. You know, it really depends on 
who you're working with, what you're working on, um, you know, it, it can be quite a different experience. In this case, in the first series of Killing Eve, um, I think once we got up and running, there was a strong feeling from BBC America and from Sid Gentle that they were liking what I'd been doing. They were starting to really understand the visual grammar that we were developing and using. So it was kind of understood and in conversations that I remember having directly with Tim and in, in general, that some of that stuff would translate um, as um, John East and Tim took over in the middle block. Um, but it's also, of course, true, and Tim will talk about this, you know, we all go our own way. We have our own things that we want to bring to it, and that's why we've been hired. And so, you know, there will be, there will be things that will make it different as well. Um, I think we agreed, I, I had quite a strong feeling that it was worth trying to use the same lenses across the whole series. And um, I think Tim agreed to sign up to that, but with, of course, his own particular um, additions and things that he likes to use added. And um, then there's another kind of continuity which runs through it in the form of the crew. And we, you know, I'd put together a team and that team of people were staying on the whole job. So they worked with Tim and they then um, rejoined me for the final block of the first series. And, you know, that, that again helps to, you know, bed in the house style um, and do that thing. But Tim, you probably can talk a bit about how that works from your side. Well, yes, I, I mean, I would do quite a lot of, fair bit of um, alternating. Um, sometimes I'm the lead cinematographer in a series and sometimes I jump in in the middle. It's sort of quite, there's no rhyme or reason to it. Um, but it very much felt on Killing Eve and, and I have to thank Julian because I think I remember a phone call with you and you said that you mentioned me to the producers when they, uh, mm. when, um, they were looking for, you know, looking for another director of photography. So, but um, I think, you know, we, we sort of started out almost at the same, you know, very nearly the same time. And we have, we both had been with the same agent since the very beginning, the sort of mm. mid, mid nineties. And there's a, there's a very much a kind of a common ground and shared experience and shared sort of appreciation of, of cinematography. So it felt like a very natural, um, I'd, I'd almost see it as a collaboration really. Um, what I was going to say I, is whether, whether those things actually did, I don't know if you've got a sense or whether you were watching what each other would were doing but but well, did it fit actually did it did, did did you sort of feed into each other a little bit perhaps and did it and, and actually all of those things became more of the house style well i think it's inevitable in a way because mm. you know there's there's a, a gaffer that tony wilcock who well, you, you work with as well laurie and i worked with him a long time ago and obviously the gaffer comes through starts with julian and then comes through so he is always informing me what what might have been done or what might not work or what might work and and you know i can tell tony to sort of you know <laughs> and uh, you Does know it get to the point of you know that, like, but, there's a there's a bit of an um, uh, american style of uh, of where actually um is that like you, you cycle through directors but a dp might stay on and they're the ones that actually control almost down to well, um kind of coverage and i wouldn't uh, and say shot style I think it depends on the director, the level of experience of the director. If it's a relatively inexperienced director, then that might be the case. But mm. 
certainly with more experienced directors, they will, they will call the shots, but it'll be, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have a sort of very good collaborative relationship with strong directors and we listen to each other and feed off each other. And it, it is a, a very, um, it's a very much a joint effort, but you know, the director is always the boss and what he or she says will go. Um, that's, that's very true. But I think also the, one of the things I've experienced moving on to a second and now third series of it is that my role has changed and has to some extent become that one that you're talking about, Laurie, mm. where um, there is a kind of assumption, if you like, by anybody coming in to direct and to work on it, that they are working with me in a house style because um, where usually they get to choose their cinematographer, they don't on this show because I'm there. And that's um, been a really interesting ride. It's actually been a really positive and good one. Um, you know, it's, a, it's learning to balance very carefully what you are trying to protect, if you like, and trying to evolve, but at the same time, not uh, overreaching what we're there to do and and recognizing that we have to support what a director is wanting to do and what they've been brought there to do um, but I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed that experience actually because it's quite an unusual one yeah I guess that you're right it's that it has to be that collaboration with a director and who doesn't you know that but people want to come in and make their mark on something of course you know that it mm. needs to stand out but but it does it also needs to fit, doesn't it? And it needs to hold, because uh, it needs to be recognisable as the, as the show. So if yeah. it suddenly falls out of that. Yeah, so it's the balance of those things, definitely. Yeah. But it's a lot of, I think in terms of the, um, the just, just call it for one of it, the lighting style. I mean, Julian and I have, we sh have, there are a lot of similarities between what we do and there's a lot of differences, but mm. it's, uh, ultimately the the look of the show will always be driven by the script and if the script has a different tone to it then it will look different i mean julian's and certainly in the first series julian's first episode was sort of beautiful sunny italy and lovely mediterranean light and and that's where they went for episode one mm -hmm. and our location was dingy grimy uh, underground Berlin so there's no way that you're going to like those two locations. Well that's the, ch that's the, the challenge way. though isn't it Tim? <laughs> <laughs> that's the challenge you know. Um, um. <laughs> and and, and in, in a way you sort of you would bring something different to it anyway but it still feels like the same show because the characters are treated honestly and the script is treated with mm. the, the attention it deserves and the coverage is interesting and, and the lighting uh, is always very stylish. So in whatever capacity of stylishness it is, it still feels part of a whole. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, what if, uh, if, if anything, did you, did, did you think that you brought of the, of, of your, the, the job you did before or uh, to, to Killing Eve? I mean, did you, in, but in terms of anything from, from a kind of a bit of a lighting style or lighting fixtures to camera movement um because we mentioned before well not here we haven't mentioned before but just in there mm. when we've chatted just about using a movie or using some of um just some mm. of those there's different some some modes that you used uh, did you had you used those before and you brought them to this um yeah a mixture i would say on on 
if I'm talking about things I brought with me, if you like, carried from previous experience and jobs, and then things I was doing differently, I would say when I started Killing Eve, I was very much on a journey of lighting with ever softer light and trying to um, break down the sources more and more and more. And um, that journey's continued through the second and third series. And I've, you know, I've been thoroughly enjoying evolving that and experimenting with that stuff. Um, there was a, there was a, there was a day in my very early prep stages, very early prep, where I decided that I wanted to really take the Movi idea seriously or something like it. I'd never used a Movi. I didn't know too much about it. I just looked up a few YouTube videos and seen some cool shots that it could do. Um, and I was in the process of putting together a team and we had an absolutely brilliant day where we all got together at a little East London rental house and put a Movi rig together and just did lots and lots of really dreadful shots that didn't work at all. And then had to come to an idea where a conclusion about whether or not we wanted to use it. And by the end of that day, I think we felt, okay, we can see this can do some really, really good stuff. And there's a lot of stuff that we should probably just avoid and not ask it to try and do. And we'll do that with Steadicam and we'll do it with other things. Mm. But I knew that I was on a journey to be shooting strong traveling point of view in the show. And that I was going to be working with shorter lenses closer to the actors most of the time, especially the main characters. That was part of what we'd discussed, planned for, and that Harry and myself and you know, the, the people involved wanted to do. Um, so the, uh, the Movi actually became a really, really great tool. And with the backup of extremely skilled operators like Joe Russell, we were able to use it to really establish a part of the grammar, the visual grammar of the series, mm. and by using it for what it was good at and not for what it wasn't good at. Um, so I think, as I mentioned to you when we were just rehearsing earlier, that um, um, it's not great at turning corners um, because of the delay thing. And although I think those rigs have got more sophisticated in the last couple of years and they work much better and there are less delays, we were finding it impossible to get it to auto kind of pan and tilt. Um, but what we do have found um, is that it makes a brilliant remote head, that it's a great bit of kit for using um, handheld, but then operated from the wheels with somebody carrying it. Mm. Um, the high to low thing, lots of things it can do. And uh, yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed making it a part of our toolbox. Mm. Yeah, I mean, people look at that for, uh, the, um, look at it as if it's a, a fix-all. Or, you know, mm -hmm. the idea that it might be, oh, this will replace Steadicam or it's a cheaper option for something. And, but I don't think it is, is it? I think that that's, the, if you look at it like you did, which was, uh, it was that it was, um, it's another tool in the arsenal of stuff. So it's, you know, it, 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 it wouldn't replace, wouldn't replace anything. Tim, was there anything mm -hmm. that you think that you brought to show that, or what, you know, how, what, what were the differences that from, from, from Julian stuff, do you think? Well, I mean, I thought just going, moving, you know, taking, taking the Movi idea a step further, because I, I was in a similar, similar, exactly the same situation as Julian. I'd never, I'd read about it, looked at them, but never used one before. And it was great to have it on board. I got to say, we only used it once as a handheld device, um, which I've shown you the clip of in mm -hmm. Berlin. But gen as, a, as a little remote head, it was really incredible because mm -hmm. it enabled us to, 
to film very uh, complex artistic camera moves in the types of locations and space that there'd never be room to achieve with a conventional, with an operator. Literally just, you can't, in a small room, you can't clamber around the dolly to get those mm. 360 degree mm. shots. But as a little, little tiny stabilized remote head, it was very easy. You put it on the dolly and trundle over the carpet or down corridors and, um, yeah, and you'd have a you'd have a really useful shot. Uh, I mean, a brilliant shot actually. And and since since Killing Eve, I've had I've had I've managed to get that system on practically every job I've um, done, and it's really it just opened up um, a very wide range of opportunity filmmaking film shot making opportunities mm. that uh, allow you so much more freedom to think. Um, think on the day that uh, you really you can do anything there's nothing to hold you back from really doing what you want but in terms yeah. of special bits of equipment again it goes back i think we discussed this uh, uh the director john east and and myself we 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 on on that on critical the medical drama we made extensive use of a a, a boroscope periscope lens um Essentially, it started out, I, I think that was one of the reasons why I got the job, because when I went for the interview, I was, I'd been looking at, I'd been looking at um, old footage from the making of Star Wars and the attack on the Death Star and how they used the periscope rig hung off the ceiling and, and tracked it through these little models. And I thought, well, this is going to be a, this is the way to shoot surgical procedures. And mm. the, the, the series was about very intense surgical procedure and it enabled us to get the camera into places that you could never dream of getting it to and more importantly allowing the physicality of the actors to work around it with a big without a big metal lump two inches from their face um, but we also knew that dramatically it enables you to just cast an eye on the world that conventional cameras and lenses don't see you can treat the body like a surreal landscape in a way by getting very close focus quite wide and just a simple pan or tilt of the lens feels like a tracking shot so mm -hmm. um so we made extensive we really used that we managed to get get that that optic on for the whole of our block and probably used it two or three times a day and it's just a it's a constant surprise it, it the, the the shots it delivers not randomly, it's a very well thought out and very considered, but as two things. One, it, it, it enables you to get shots that you wouldn't, again, normally be able to do without maybe cutting away bits of furniture and removing walls, etc. And secondly, it just puts you in the headspace, the, the, the mm. physical and mental headspace of the narrative that the character is feeling at that time in a way that's very unusual and very striking and very extremely engaging. Um, so yeah, that's super was, effective. I think that's yeah, you know, the, the, the ultra low shots and the uh, or ultra low tracking. So it's skimming the ground and yeah. just those points of I mean, view you, that are impressive. You can do all of that stuff. A lot of that stuff you can do conventionally, but it's not quite the same it, and, it, and it takes a lot longer and and I think the close focus aspect to it is is really uh, 
quite astonishing you can focus literally on the front element of the lens so you know you can get the hairs on your cheek and then pull through to infinity it's, mm. it's... so you mentioned big lumps of uh, metal close to actors yeah. so julian what uh, what what camera and what lenses did you choose for this show <laughs> um well um the the most recent series and the second series we were using the lf but that wasn't available right. in the first series so backtracking to that we were on alexa minis and we actually were going for quite a small and compact camera package on the basis that we did want to move the camera a lot, wanted to do a lot of steady cam and a lot of the Movi as we've discussed. Mm. And uh, I had Canon K35s as my sort of driver main set of lenses and um, some Cooksby Pancros as a second set, which I tested along with all kinds of other lenses as a set that I would mix and match uh, with them and decided I liked the results a lot. And so that's what we did. Um, we had a couple of very small and compact century zooms and bits and bobs that we, um, you know, would, would use as specials. But, uh, but that was the, uh, yeah, that was the main thrust in the first series. Second series, very different feel, moving on to the LF, which had to be a big camera because it just is. Mm. And, you know, we discussed it as a team. I discussed it with Joe Russell, who was going to have to be carrying it. And, um, and you know, when we, we, we looked at the things about it, it would bring to the show and, you know, help us to evolve what we were doing as a style and uh, give me some tools. I, I was just really attracted to the very shallow depth of, you know, you know, the large sensor format and all the things it could do. And um, so, yeah, a different what fit between the two. What lenses did you go with on the LF? On the LF, it was the K35s again. Um, and of course, there aren't many old sets of glass that you can choose for a large format camera, um, but the K35s mostly um, cover. So that was, a, that was an easy choice. But to go with them as a backup set, uh, or as a, a, a set to mix in, we used um, what at the time, when I was doing the second series, were prototypes only, and that's the uh, DNAs from ARRI. And the L was that the LF DNAs or the 65 DNAs? The LF DNAs. And they were literally prototypes. I mean, they, when they first suggested to me that they might be available, they had two prototypes for me to test. And so they're like bean tins, are they? Yeah, they were like bean <laughs> tins and they were, they were, you know, they weren't coated or painted and you know, not marked up properly. But, um, but we got enough out of them that we thought they could be fun. And um, so I took a bit of a punt and it was a gamble actually to, to, to launch into it with a, a very unproven set of lenses. And I would say with mixed results, there were, you know, I found in using them that there were some lenses that I just didn't love and that there were others that I loved a lot. Um, there was a, you know, a very dreamy and beautiful, I think it's a 75 portrait lens that looks really, really nice. And a couple of the wide ones were, were good and just brought a bit of feel. And actually going back to what Tim was saying about the special bit of kit he was using and that lens, um, a, a little kind of legacy of that for me moving into the second series was to think about um, the way that had looked in the stuff that the, the work that Tim and John had done and I ended up um, bringing on some of the century um, swing tilts and, um, oh, right. oh, and, and it was not, the, not for the same thing but it was actually the same thinking that kind of at times reaching for a different feel and we use those a lot we've ended up using them more and more. Um, 
that um that's i think that's really fascinating did yeah. did, did you uh, do you when you've got a set of lenses and i think it, whether it felt like it did with this is that did you whittle it down to to like a show set you know because i often if you've got a, you can have a set of six or seven eight nine lenses you actually end up there's a there's a language in having you know yes. you've got your it wide lens awesome. and your mid lens and your long lens did that and th and then did you did you ever pass that on you know in terms of the style um i think to some extent it got passed on and probably as much as from me it would have been passed on through the crew and the way they would the operators would offer up mm. the shots because there's such a uh, a grammar for us with the way we've, we've we've done it but i mean of course that wouldn't always um end up translating and you know dops will do their own thing and have done and and that all makes perfect sense um but it it's uh yeah it's interesting and actually we did whittle it down to a show set to answer your question and i say more than that the, the truth is we whittled it down to a 35 and a 50 and we shot almost everything to <laughs> most of the time and all day, every day, we would be using, and still do to some extent, mm. use those lenses. And of course, you know, they're not rules and we reach for whatever we need. And there are times you want a different feel and you want to do something completely different um, for a reason. But yeah, 35 and a 50. Mm. But, like, but like with any rules, as soon as you, if, if you kind of stick to something that gives you a show, an unconscious show feel, as soon as you then throw on a 180, then you know the the, the difference is is enormous, mm. isn't it? And it can be really mm. super effective. Great. Anyway, I've just got I've, I've still got loads to talk about because this is endlessly fascinating. Um, um, so lenses and cameras, I think, which is great consistency there. I mean, I'm a I'm a, a unashamed Alexa uh, uh, acolyte. I've mm. love it. It's a bomb-proof sensor. In, straight out of the box, it can be. Um, you know it's beautiful and it's got a look to it so we can get on we'll get on to sort of the overall look oh actually because it just briefly um we'll get on to to the fascinating subject of lutz and grade i mean mm. it was it, it was did you use any filtration because it's a relatively low con look across the board isn't it so did you did you use any filtration just physically in, in um yes um I, I i always use a little bit of diffusion um, um, very light, mm. um, but I don't use loads of filters. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I, I use you know the the NDs that we use to get this stop right down. So I'm working with a little bit of diffusion and a very shallow depth of field usually. Mm. And um, in terms of LUTs, um, I, I, I build some and um, make those with my team, and I, I use. Um, really just a light touch actually when it comes to LUTs. Um, I've experimented over the years with some really quite crunchy ones and, and everything in between and decided that what I, all I wanted was to just be able to steer the tone of the scene, you know, warmer or cooler, you know, a bit of emotional steer to what the scene was, was dealing with. Um, but also, you know, I, I knew approximately where I was headed in the grade having worked with Gareth Spensley before. Um, and he's a he's a you know a fabulous grader as we know, and um, it was uh, very much a, you know we'd have a quick look at the offline and we could see what the, the LUTs had been used and then disregard that pretty much and just do what we were working through and we quite quickly built a you know a way through it and in terms of the contrast, 
um, I would say that was part of a very early journey where um, what I really wanted and made very clear what was wanted for the show was that it would look beautiful, but it wouldn't look too studied. It wouldn't look too looky. So they were very keen that it wasn't really crunched and punchy in its look and uh, that it would have a natural, believable, real-world feel to it. Um, and so we always intended that the, the grave would be, you know, doing amazing things, but with a light touch, if you like. I think that's a good point to, to maybe we could get onto some of your references and sort of where they, where, where, where they stemmed from and whether there were things that you brought to the party or whether it was, you know, about the development of those. Mm. Um, so maybe actually we've got, because I've got your, should we have a look at your tone document? Jim? Yeah, sure. So this is, I mean, what's great about this, it's got some pictures on it that we can really quickly look at. Um, mm. Yes. So if you just talk us through a little bit of this. I mean, okay. you, don't, 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 you don't have to read it all out, but just <laughs> No, no, of... I, won't, I won't read it all out. I'm proud <laughs> read it for themselves, I'm sure. Can you scroll this up a bit? Yes, of course. Apologies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll just go through it. Um, I mean, you know, we're all, most of us are familiar with these documents that we're asked to produce to be sent to, you know, in this case, this is a, an American show, although um, we perhaps think of it as got a British show. It's actually an American mm -hmm. show that, um, you know, gets shown here and we... Um, you know, we had American bosses to answer to very keen on these documents. So they wanted to have some idea of the direction of travel. And what, one of the things that's interesting about revisiting this for me now is, is that it, it still represents some of the early thinking, but it also shows just how far you move when you actually start the, the reality of filming and the journey you go on with, you know, multiple directors, writers and so on. Um, yeah, if you can scroll this up a bit, I'll, I'll try and talk about some of the th thoughts we were having. Um, what, what we've got there is um, a mixture of movie references. And we, we, you know, as you do, discuss lots and lots of film and television. And we, um, we had three key movies that we decided were reference points that everybody agreed upon and everybody liked. And Sicario was one of them. And you know, I mean, most people would be huge Roger Deakins fans, I would think, in our world. And I certainly am. He um, just shot a flawless bit of cinematography, amazing tension building, very beautiful. And I think the box it ticked for us above all. And I remember Harry Bradbeer watching clips of that with me and saying, that's the one. Um, along with No Country for Old Men. And it was, it was the, the fact that they... They hit that note of being very beautiful, but without feeling like they've worked too hard to be that. Hmm. The look is not forced and, fo and faked. You know, there's not a, a, you know, a lot of artificial tinting and the skin tones tend to be quite natural or, you know, or at least you understand where they're coming from. Hmm. Um, there was a third film, which is an Argentinian film. Um, and uh, what was that called now? It's there, Wild Tales. And it, it, it was... Um, it was chosen because one of the things that, um, of course, comes very strongly through Phoebe Waller-Bridge's writing is wit. They're very witty, clever things. And there were some nice examples in that film of actually quite witty uses of camera moves and where they sort of whip the camera around to play the comedy. And um, it just felt like it was a really smartly, uh, really smart, intelligent way to use the camera. Um, let me just see what I was, I'll just read some of what we were, what we were writing or what I was writing at the time. Yeah. Can you go off the screen from there? Does it go any further? Yeah, of course. 
yeah so oh, i see this is what this is from wild tales is it that's from wild tales there. that's from mm. wild tales and um then below that's uh, just a recce shot um mm. we, we kicked off the series in italy we were in tuscany and we were looking at tuscan villas and that's just one of my snaps of a uh, a rather nice bit of soft light coming through the windows of a tuscan interior and uh, there are several more of those if we go up just references that sort of we we felt were setting the the feel for things we like the look of so again a couple more reference shots from locations including one from the first series which is the the wall with the lamppost on it um which right. you see you see villanelle runs up that wall and up onto roof in the first series <laughs> and down below that um well this is the heady days of dreaming that we might be able to film it in a in a, a widescreen format that's just in the test room at take two i think and um i was um just doing a little bit of early experimenting with a couple of stand-ins for composition and um and looks and color temperature and uh, we sent those off to bbc america and they said love them but we're not going to shoot it widescreen <laughs> that was the, yes, the end it, of that it's still a challenge <laughs> dashed dashed yeah another location shot from what became one of the you know sort of big location numbers mm. um, um and that's the uh the downstairs um real paris location of uh, villanelle's paris apartment which she also had a big set build of and um perhaps in due course i can i'll show those photos i have of the villanelle's apartment set mm. well, mood for love you know just texture color um just playing up the uh how we might use the color noir feel actually mm. i think in reality we did do that but we did it in a you know rather more subtle way than pictured there mm. well that's it isn't it is that often with um uh, uh, references like you, you said um that actually going back to this document having then shot to, you know, or having shot three series now, it's kind of going back to the original document and going, actually, you know, we've, the, uh, the, the prep had so much value because actually it all got buried and you, you, you absorbed all those references and what you produced is something mm. that is, you know, has clearly really worked and has become a, a strong uh, grammar in its own. But then when you look back at this, you go, Oh, you know, it's like storyboards. You go, actually, we did, we shot all the things we should have, <laughs> we said we were going to. Yeah. And um, yeah. so it's, 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 I love that when he, you realize how, how, how effective the prep has been. That's always. Yeah, good. absolutely. And, and it is, yeah, it is. And it's, it's always different as well, isn't it? You know, the prep with different directors is a different experience. Mm. And it's not exactly the same, you know, with people that people, you show people pictures and go, well, you know, I've been thinking about this and they go, well, you know, I don't want it to be exactly, exactly like that, but it can't be. I think it's when you've got four or five things and then you throw them all together and then you make it, make, make your own thing. Mm. Tim, if you've, you've got a similar document, haven't you? I think if you could, you could, yeah, I suppose. Just would briefly just show us the difference, I guess, slightly yeah. with, um, okay. I'll, Right, let me share my screen and I might all go. I think I've got it here now. It'll go ooh, down to a white dot. Okay, so, um, <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> this is, um, I'm gonna let me go through to something because we, one of the, uh, one of the key references for, for me, and then 
I think John John East took that on board as the conformist, um, mm. the Bertolucci Storaro film. And I'm just yeah. looking back over my notes here, the strong heroine, beautifully lit, but always with an edge, high contrast graphic, deep focus frames, the light and shadow interplay. And then, uh, and then you get the atmospheric evocation of city streets. Cause I was thinking very much about our Berlin episode and going quite cool. And then also keeping things warm and sultry, but uh, very vibrant for the interiors. Um, and also a lot of these, uh, a lot of these conformist sets felt very much in keeping with what, uh, what we might be seeing in, in Berlin as well. Very sort of Teutonic, but Teutonic, but authoritarian Soviet bloc era, um, spaces. Um, and the other, the other film that I, I kind of kept going back to, I sort of tend to go back in time a little bit was, um, Point Blank. Um, Lee Mar the John Borman film, Lee Marvin, mm -hmm. and uh, is to do with his, it's not, not so much the lighting, but it's just to do with the compositions. And I, as when, I, when I was thinking through the scripts, it was always this feeling of Villanelle, you know, the cat and mouse and Villanelle and Eve, they, they're, they're, they, they get close to each other, they get away from each other, they, they finally meet, but there has to be a way that compositionally, I wanted the, sort of the elements within the frame to kind of cross over from one to the other and back again as they get closer to each other physically and mentally. And, and I thought these, uh, I always felt that uh, the way John Borman used composition elements within the frame mm. uh, just ties things together in a very abstract, but also ultimately really focused way. And again, just it was kind of location, the location driven seemed to lend itself to these, this type of deep focus widescreen but obviously not widescreen <laughs> framing that can really bring you know have a very strong foreground midground and background and all the elements pulling together and working at the same time um, and uh, and the other the other the other film that I went to a you know I, I, I thought was a good um, had a good a good sense of where Killing Eve could go is L.A. Confidential, because you've got it's a big it's an ensemble piece. It's sort of mm. there's there's quite a bit of precinct procedural stuff, uh, and it's very hard and gritty, which again, our episodes were, but you know you still you know you come back to the the softness of uh, of Villanelle in her in you know the environment that she controls, and when you when you find these images with uh, Kim Bessinger. I always mm. thought this was a very uh, strong idea of where Killing Eve could go visually because you have the, the, the woman very much in control of her beautiful surroundings and her counterpart, when Russell Crowe, Sandra Oh, sort of f floundering around, never quite knowing what's going to hit them and pull them backwards and forwards and, and finding themselves beautifully lit, badly lit, uh, differently lit and shot, but the Villanelle character is always, always kind of holds, holds her ground. Mm -hmm. um, and I think those, those were, those, I mean, John, the director had many, many other, you know, we could go, I could go on forever. And we, you know, he's had fantastic ideas about 
the lenses and the camera work and wide lenses and you know, the combination of extreme wide lenses and long telephoto lenses in terms to, to portray perspective shifts. Um, but that's, that's kind of in a nutshell where, where we were, mm. what our thought process was. I mean, even looking at those, uh, uh, the, the, those few sets of photos actually between you is that those, it really does, it, that sets up a super strong, and it is a, it's, it, I would say it's, it's really quite consistent and it's become, it's very, you know, even, for, I mean, I've seen most, all, all of series one, most and half of series two, and it's, it, it, you, you've just shown me starting points on, uh, mm. on the, the whole look. So it's really, um, that's really interesting to see how how you absorb absorb that stuff and then talking put it about the machine. It would be good to just follow on that earlier question you had, Laurie, about filtration. Um, mm. you see, I I kept with the same diffusion that Julian had established because it just was looked exactly right. But I used um, color filters a lot. Um, I'm, I'm sort of a for, for one of them better word quite old school in terms of you know so in terms of LUTs as well I, I I never I've never used a LUT I always just stick rec 709 on because I'm a firm believer in one light rushes and if it looks good on the if it looks good on the one lights then you know that you're going to be fine all the way down the line so mm. um but in terms of if not so much effects, but in terms of a very a look in camera, I always do try and do it in camera as much as possible. And and I use a combination of filters for so for for Berlin. It started with Berlin, so Berlin, and then it ended up being used for London and interiors as well. I use the Schneider Storm Blue filters, um, which are quite a subtle cyan filter that I've used a lot over the years. And it, essentially, it, it's like having a split tone, mm. like a split tone magic on the, on the negative or the video. And if you, I find that if I used the storm blue in conjunction with a slightly warmer light on the skin tone. So where, you know, if you, if you're lighting it a bit, you put a quarter or sometimes a half CTO on, or just use a, use a gold reflector rather than a white reflector. And you get that color separation onto the video signal, the filter, takes that a little step further and just creates a really beautiful uh, sooty cyany note to the shadows, but keeping the skin tones really fresh. And mm. um, I got to say, Gareth in the grade, he loved that. He, he really, you know, he just took that on board and ran with it. And it was, it worked like a dream. Mm. And it, one of our episodes, episode four, had a totally different feel. It was uh, very much a picture postcard, country cottage, English village. That, that, but, but what John, the director, and I think Phoebe also kind of embraced was the idea it should be a, it should be a foreigner's view of a picture postcard, country cottage, mm. English village, not what we know. So all honeysuckle and golden tones and, and you know, uh, not 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 what uh, not what one would traditionally do, but it had to feel different in a way. So I used um, rather than just adjusting the color temperature and adjusting things in the grade, I used antique suede filters on the on the lens, and and again that just took it immediately to the right place without even having to 
do anything. It was perfect. And interiors as well. I kept them on the interiors because there was a few of car interiors and cottage, country cottage interiors as well. And, and actually lighting with, um, lighting with sort of half corrected dinos and with the antique suedes, it came out absolutely spot on. I was very pleased with that. And um, in the grade, it was just the difference was, was instantaneously recognizable and, and Gareth really didn't have to do anything at all because it was there. So it was, it was very gratifying. <laughs> Hmm. that's great it's an argument for doing it in camera you know not yeah. relying entirely on mm. on the di um you um we talked about uh, working with joe russell and you mentioned tony wilcock um mm. on, on series one anyway and i know um uh joe russell has continued throughout i think all three seasons but how is that for both of you obviously passing on uh, sharing crew but i mean it's it's always great to have a family of collaborators isn't it and kind of clinging on to people and that, that also must have the doubly useful thing a, a because you get a shorthand but but b then you've got that continuity so how did um how was that for the pair of you and obviously you instigated it uh julian by in, employing them but was that yes. obviously a benefit to you tim yeah well, I, would, I i i i mean i'd work with joe the first time in 2010 on Doctor Who and I was immediately immediately struck with how brilliant he was he was really and that was actually before he started doing Steadicam but he was a great operator I mean just a fantastic eye and as Julian said the right personality physically extremely strong so which which uh, is a, a great asset to a camera operator and you have to be lithe and nimble and and and, and Joe's uh, is a very experienced um, rock climber, alpinist, so he can literally hang hang from a hang from a ledge off with his fingertips, and uh, it really That's shows. What we all want operators to be able to do. Yeah. So I was very pleased, you know, to know that Joe was um, on board. I knew that we you know it would just be slipping into a very comfortable working relationship. And mm. Julian, had you worked? Had you worked with Tony before? Me. Hmm. Um, Tony Wilcock, yes, I had. Mm. Uh, yeah, I had worked with him, but I had not worked with Joe before. Right. The reason that I asked him to come and work on it was that I had been on a, uh, sitting on a judging panel and I'd seen his work and that was the, the first time I was sort of really properly aware of him, although I'd seen things he'd, he'd shot without being aware that it was him really. And, you know, I just looked at, the, you know, the, the work that he submitted and I was incredibly impressed. And, um, you know, chatting to various people about him, just started to hear uh, very good things. So we met and, uh, he, you know, he was interested. It's an, it was an attractive project, of course. I mean, if you go back to the, a couple of years ago when, or three years ago when we were starting Killing Eve, it was really still early days for the sort of really big budget Netflix shows and other things to be happening here. It felt like a big show. It was certainly a very exciting show. Um, so it was an, an attractive proposition. So I can understand why Joe's interest. I certainly was keen to have him join me. And he was, he was amazing. He's been incredible all through. Um, he has a huge range of skills and has, you know, helped me develop the grammar and style of the show very much. And he, um, yeah, he's there to represent that and to, you know, to keep that going, working with all the different directors. I mean, I've, I work with several directors each year. Um, and, uh, you know, I have to play that role too, but Joe, yeah, really sees that through. 
mean, he's clearly a, a, a big part of the team. In t- I mean, how much do you, do you let Joe, um, or how do you work out the, the triangle between you, you and the director and the operator of, of, of actually sequencing or, or, or shot finding? I mean, do you, yeah, I would say that, that, that your that's your been, lighting. That's been a journey. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, one of the there's no doubt that Joe has a huge amount of freedom to input his ideas. Um, I would say not so much in the blocking side, um, although. I mean, it depends. It depends on the director we're working with and it depends on the circumstances. There will be times when um, the director will block a scene with the actors and no one else is in the room. But generally speaking, I expect to be in the room as well, and I usually am. And sometimes Joe will be there with me, and if it's up to me, he is. Um, but some directors prefer it to be me first. So we'll, we'll kind of sort out the blocking and the director will ask me, are there any issues for lighting or for camera that you want to talk through? And, you know, I'll say what those are and then everyone else will come in or usually we bring in Joe and these days Richard Bradbury who operates the B camera will come in and, um, you know, two people who know the, the show's sort of camera grammar very well and they, they will, of course, input things very much at that stage. Um, I mean, there have been undoubtedly times where Joe's input enormously and, you know, um, created the, the shots in terms of how they're going to develop. So not so much the blocking of the scene, but certainly the blocking of what the camera might do in that scene. Um, there have been other times where that's been less so. I, in the second series, I worked with an American director called Francesca Gregorini, and she was really, really keen in the prep with me to photograph just about every single shot we would do. And we, we just, using stand-ins, went to every location and we blocked out every scene and we shot every angle. And it doesn't mean that that translated hard and fast into how we filmed it. And Joe still continued, of course, to have considerable input and to improve things. But um, as a starter out of the blocks, it just meant there was less to do because we we knew roughly where we were going to go um, for camera angles and positions and sizes for a lot of those scenes. Um, But yeah, in general, a big, a big input. Did that feel, did, did that, how did that feel as a method? Was that something that you would do again? I mean, spending time um, in a location is always good, isn't it? Because you can kind of see where the lighting's going and what yeah, times I, of day and how that differs. And it's kind of good to do real times. We can all come up with a shot, but mm. doing something that really fits into the space. Um, uh, I think initially be... I was a little bit resistant to the idea. Not, not resistant to, to doing it or to having a go, but slightly perhaps resistant to quite understanding the benefit of it mm. uh, versus the scale of the task. But actually, as we started to do it, and it became quite methodical, and we really were doing it, and she really did mean it, I <laughs> really appreciated it, and it was good. I really enjoyed it. Um, it was, it was, yeah, it was a very useful process. And and you know, where there were big scenes that were going to be complex, you know, in the second series, there's a there's a lengthy scene um, between you know the, the the two main players between Eve and Villanelle that travels through the house, and it takes a you know, a long time to play out and a lot of things happen. And it was really useful to have uh, a whole day where we just shot some video and stills and worked a few things out. And, and, and that undoubtedly was helpful. Mm. But, um, but I mean, a good example of input from Joe Russell would be, let's talk about the, uh, the amazing Steadicam work he did on the opening shot of the second series on a staircase in Paris. Um, the very first inklings of that came from Damon the director who is a, a you know a, a really really terrific director 
and never short of a good idea, you know, either visually or any other kind. And he had the idea and he just said, I want to do the, of the series in, a, in one shot and this is where it's going to take place. And he and I just had a very quick look around the location in Paris and started to form up an idea of how that might work. Next recce, Joe joined us and it all took off because at that point we were able to shoot it on video and Joe was able to show what could be executed and what he could execute and it was extraordinary and um, yeah, just really elevated the whole idea. Fantastic. Well, that's a, uh, the, a sign of a good team, you know, when, you, when all of those, uh, the, the minds come together to, 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 to see what's available, to, you know, what's, to see what's possible. Um, series one, you uh, worked with the amazing, uh, lovely Christian Milstead, production designer, just yeah. in building, the, building the, the initial universe of Killing Eve. Um, mm. How was that for you? I mean, I'm, uh, and, you know, and everything. So that's kind of locations and, and uh, how much input in locations and then how much building was there and, you know, just so forming the, the universe of Killing Eve. How was, how was that working with Christian? Um, working with Christian was a, a great pleasure. I, I mean, we, you know, we got on personally very well. He's a very talented guy. Um, so it's going to be a good experience and it, and it definitely was. Um, he absolutely knows what he wants. He knows where his red lines are all that becomes very clear. So, you know, you get the creative tensions and, and the different agendas sometimes clashing a little bit, but it was a very creatively um, enjoyable experience. And uh, Colin Ratton, the producer of the first series, made it clear that, um, at the outset that he wanted me involved in the prep from a very early stage. So I did a much longer prep on Killing Eve than I'm, I'd been used to doing. I was, I was something like 11, 12 weeks out from shooting, I was on location recce. So effectively I was scouting with Christian and the team um, in a way I would not normally expect to be able to do. Um, and just because I was there meant that, you know, the conversation was um, more of a team conversation than it would otherwise have been. Some would say that that was the right amount of prep, being I there would, and I, I, would, I would agree, <laughs> on, on bigger jobs it is, isn't it? But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it's certainly not been the case on many, many things I've shot over. Mm. Um, but it was it was a, a great pleasure from my point of view to, to be doing so. But Christian, of course, as I say, absolutely a very, very strong team leader, knows what he's doing, knows what he wants to do. And, and you know, it's just very creative and brilliant ideas. There was a set building, including uh, a couple of, you know, really, really statement set piece ones, the, uh, the Paris apartment, which was an incredible piece of work. Absolutely brilliant. And, um, you know, you just wouldn't know it was a set, really. Yeah. Should we look at some pictures of those? Yes, shall I show, um, us, your, show us your pictures? Because you've got, got various ones of uh, from set, but there's a the, just there's a couple of the um, of uh, Villanelle's apartment, which is uh, it's always good to see the ins and yeah. outs of that. So you seeing that? I am. Yes. So that that photo of them lying on the bed comes from the very end of the series, big scene with a uh, stabbing involved. And series one, I point out, it's not there. There's no there's no reveals in this. No, no, no spoilers. <laughs> series one. Um, all available on the iPlayer. Um, yeah, so you know you can you can see the little uh, sense of the rig that's being used, and um, there's Joe at the wheels, um, Richard who was focus pulling, sitting next to him, and Damon with the headphones. Mm. And I will just go to, sorry, the next photo. So that is um, a, a large section of this Paris apartment with some lighting. 
And if I just take you to the next photograph, it will show the lighting that's doing that job. Mm. So it was all sky panels. We had a large rig of sky panels. Actually, that photo, I just realized now looking at it, was taken at a stage before it was quite finished. So what you see at the top row of sky panels are just raw sky panels as they come out of the box. They actually had um, big bellies of diffusion added in front of them before we shot anything with them. Mm -hmm. um, then the ones on the floor were just moved around to suit. And, and I supplemented that with mole beams um, bursting in through the window, so bits of sunlight hitting the floor, whatever. So that's the kind of an effect inside. And that was Amazing. a lot of it. And did you ever, the, 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 uh, the, uh, if that is, is that a Roscoe soft drape? There are other back, backing. Yes, now that's an interesting one. <laughs> it is. And it worked just fine. And we got it working really well. As ever in these jobs, you end up in a studio that's smaller than you'd like to be. And everything gets compressed and it's not as far away from the windows as you'd like it to be. Mm. But it worked really well. Having said that, it just wasn't alive enough and Gareth uh, Grader very cleverly just changed some skies for us and put in some moving skies and it really really helped to knit it all together made a big difference. Yeah, and we, we shot a few little um, elements on green screen lay you know cleaners dusting carpets etc and, and stuck them into the uh, stuck them in the window so you had oh, a really bit of a, you had a bit of real life on the back. <laughs> there's, a, there's a couple yeah, of quick a couple of other quick shots I'd like to show you. Oh, yeah, go for it. Which just relate to what we were... Well, that's just one more of the same, me setting lights via an iPad control system. So it was all back to a, a desk and then remotely operated, which was very nice to have and just makes it much, much quicker. Um, there is the, uh, the downstairs real location um, Paris apartment. But what I wanted to just quickly go to was this here, this image here. We were talking about how were the shots made, how did the team work? And in the first series, I'd say that's a very good example. Um, we had a fledgling focus puller moving up to B camera operator, who you see holding the iPhone, looking at his Artemis, um, Justin Hawkins. And you can see myself, Damon and Joe all kind of overseeing him and biting his back and telling him that he's doing it all wrong. <laughs> brilliant and stepped up very well. Um, I'm, sure Tim would concur that he did a, a great job sort of doing something he hadn't really done an awful lot of before. Um, but I think that picture for me says a lot about the way we worked as a team of people um, in making shots together. Um, that's uh, another example of just showing them how it's done. Showing how it's done, pretending <laughs> that I'm operating, pretending that I'm operating <laughs> on the show, which I wasn't. A um, little bit of Joe with steady cam and some daylight fill out in about in Paris. I noticed that it felt like there was quite a lot of uh, those um, uh, battery powered light mats were used a fair amount, yeah. I think, so for some kind of top yeah. lights and, uh, yeah. uh, and stuff in the hand and all sorts. Yeah, really yeah we did super use useful and fast. Yeah. We did. And this location here, this last one I'll show you, um, we did the steady cam shot that you're seeing there, which was a, a type two shot and then the singles. But we also did a shot on a rig, which I know Tim has got some video of, so maybe when we have a look at that in a sec. Um, we did a shot here at the Place de la Concorde of um, then walking across the square, which was low angle wide Movi um, on a little um, dolly. Mm. 
And it was one of those shots with the Movi that just made me think this is an incredible tool and this is a really great shot because it's a wide tracking shot where it's the sort of shot you always want to do. You can't do it unless you have a big crane usually because you're going to see your track. Um, but just pulling it across those cobbles, we didn't feel the bumps that you can see are clearly there. And we just got an amazing, amazing shot. Um, yeah. Is that so, but, you, but you don't think you could have done that in low mode Steadicam? Um, no, we couldn't have done it in low mode Steadicam. It just has a different feel. It very mm. much that kind of, um, yeah, stabilised dolly feel. Just Brilliant. very and smooth in a different way. Cool. Thank you for those. They're great. I mean, it's always good to see. You know, uh, if I, it's magazines, I, it's what I want to see. I want to see those shots. I want to see how stuff is done. It's always endlessly fascinating. Um, um, locations. Let's just quick, quickly do locations and work, shooting mm. abroad. Um, how was that? Uh, you know, obviously that, that that takes time, and you've got to go. You know, this travel there, and did you get to take crew? What are the difficulties and what are the benefits of, of shooting abroad on a, on a TV schedule? Julian? To... Um, well, uh, on Killing Eve, it was, it was a, a very pleasurable experience, I have to say. The way we set, were set up on the show was that we would take our entire team. And you don't always get to do that. I've done many jobs abroad where I've had to go off on my own and work with a, a local team, which can be a joy but it can also be quite tricky mm. and being able to take everyone and keep everything going was really, really pleasurable. Um, so each country we went to, we had a decent number of recce's. We got to go there and sort it all out. When we started filming, we'd got our whole team there, plus usually quite a substantial local crew on top. Um, in the first series, we filmed um, Romania for Russia. And in Romania, we, it felt like we nearly doubled our crew. I mean, we didn't literally double it, but we had a very large team there. And that was absolutely brilliant because everyone on the Romanian team did a great job. And um, yeah, I couldn't have had more tools to, to use really. Mm. But then it adds a whole thing because then uh, Gaffer needs to then oversee a local team. And, uh, but, but I mean, I think it's, it's quite unusual to be able to take your entire team mm. on, a foreign, on a foreign trip, even on quite a big show. That's, um, it, it's quite unusual. But yeah, yeah it's, it, it, it's a logistical. It can be, can, can be tricky, but, um, it, mm. but also very successful, you know, because actually the benefits you're getting are, you know, place, locations that you would never build, you know. Yeah, I certainly found it was very successful. It was... Uh, and, and you're not you're not there you're not there for long enough to really bed in the local crew if you if you for a week's shooting or maybe two weeks shooting you need to hit the ground running so mm -hmm. when you've got your your team who know the way the show is looking responding straight away and then with a whole sec you know a whole second team of the, of local crew who are mm -hmm. a fantastic support and they communicate with the with all the technicians uh, if it's in a different language then uh, it, it only it only makes a, only makes for a much better product in the end mm. I mean I've I've done a lot of shows abroad where you know you work with the local crew but you know you have five or six weeks prepping and wrecking and getting to know everybody and, mm. and you feel part of the family but when you're just pitching in and coming and going you'll come unstuck quite quickly and the schedules were really tight uh, mm. our, our filming abroad schedules were 
we'd fly in and we'd be shooting that day straight away and yeah, we'd be shooting the day that we flew out so there was no time for any ambiguity. no holiday right no <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. never a holiday. Um, so, out of interest, what, how, how many days per episode did you uh, did you get? I think we and had. Did it, a... And did it vary? Did, did depending on what you uh, needed to do? Well, I I was only in Berlin, so we had a, a I think we had a week there, maybe five days, um, and some recce. You know, we'd had a I'd been out on a on a recce with the director and the producer and the designer, and then. Then we came, then we did a full tech recce with the crew. So I'd been out there twice before mm. we actually went to film. And I'm sure that's the same with you, Julian, as well. Yeah. And how many days were you shooting, Tim, for, um, you know, uh, the whole episode or for, for a uh, lot? Well, I mean, three episodes. Uh, I can't, I can't remember. They ended were they up shot, they ended up adding an extra week because we had a massive, a huge um, car chase mm. sequence, which had been, which yes, you did indeed needed another four days filming. I, I, I don't know. We must have had about 36, 40 mm. days. I, I can't remember off the top of my yeah. head. Yeah, the setup was slightly more unusual in the first series. That the the first block was two episodes, and then the subsequent two blocks were three episodes each. And, um, and since then, in series two and three, we've shot back to a format of two episodes per block, so with more directors. And, mm. and it sounds like it's, it, was adap it was adaptive, depending on, on the sort of stuff that you needed to achieve. It was adaptive. So, yeah. you know, there tended to be a little bit more time for block one work and sometimes at the very end, but not always. And, and it was adaptive. And, yeah, as Tim said, you know, there were certain key big setups or big events needed a bit more time cool well we're doing terribly well i just wanted to we, we should do some questions because we've got a lovely set of questions in the q a box absolutely um there's somebody here from joe craven who says what's the key to create this is a bit no small question this what's the key to creating suspense when filming <laughs> that's no small question but any no you know. it's not go on then tim <laughs> Edith is creating suspense. Well, it's the script, really. It has to be. It all, it all comes from the script. If it, if it's, uh, if it's, if the, if you're reading the suspense, then filming it is really easy. Um, you just use your experience with lighting and lenses and the way the camera can tell a story. But if it's, um, if that's not, if if it's not there, then it never will be there. But uh, you know, there are a lot of little tropes that you can use you know you use negative space and and a moving camera creeping camera uh, dark shadowy lighting people mm. coming out of the shadows into the light and back back and forth it's there's a there's a, a, a kind of a, a library of techniques but as i said it's the perform perform the script and performance has to mm. deliver that really before you shoot it yeah, and I'd say if you want a masterclass in how to film suspense, then watch No Country for Old Men, the scene mm. placed in the motel when he's being hunted down. Um, yeah, I would say that tells you an awful lot of things about yeah. how to shoot suspense. And Hitchcock. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's yeah. performance, isn't it, I think, as well. It's the, ca the camera just watching somebody 
uh, I think does an awful lot of the work. It's not just, yeah, it's and I would say how you can make a camera move in a suspenseful way. You know, it's yeah. Well, there are lots of and not seeing. There are lots of answers to the question, aren't there? Mm -hmm. and, and lots of tools in the toolbox. I would say, if the question is directed at killing Eve in particular, I suppose some of the things we've done to try and create suspense, because we have this style of wanting to use wide lenses closer to the actors, is that you try and work out with what you're going to do with the camera and the lens, what the actor is doing in the performance that is suspenseful, that is part of the tension, and you want to be in there with them feeling it. And that's the, the sort of the benefit of shooting in that in close and wide style, that if that actor turns and breathes, you want to feel like that breath has just hit your lens and you're with them. And it, it's, and you know, as Tim said, of course, it's in the lighting, you, you know, you'll like the scene if it's a if suspense is intended to add to that. And, you know, you'll, you'll use the light and shadow. Well, I can, I can show you a little example because there's actually a, a, a got a little 10 second clip of a scene it's a sort of it's a, it's a death scene but mm. it's actually very it's done very suspensefully um and uh what we did was uh, it was meant to sort of symbolize that it meant to feel like the last glimmer of light in someone's eye you know last sense of what they're experiencing before life ebbs away mm. um shall i just show that because it's sort of yeah, quite go a, good, it. it's a very quick yeah. thing and then i can show you the sort of the setup as well so, is it terribly gruesome? No, 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 not at all. Excellent. Uh, the, the bit that came previously was very gruesome, especially okay. if you're a, especially if you're a bloke. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. So, this was. Um, can you see that then? Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So if you notice, you see that ring light in his eyes there. Mm. And it was sort of an, it was actually an idea that you wanted to see the light go out of his eyes at the point of death. And, and um, so, and, and we use, this is actually a good example of the probe lens. Um, so you can see that the camera was on a slider, just pushing in very slowly on our gentleman mm. here. And there's the gaffer, Tony Wilcock, and he had the, the ring light on a dimmer. And as it pushed in, you'd get the reflection in his eyes just very subtly get dimmer as um, mm. at the end. But uh, close and wide, close and wide and moving shots definitely, um, you know, will always give you that sense of ominous foreboding. I think that's something that I, I think that maybe uh, it felt like Joe as, a, or as the operators would bring is that there's lots of really beautiful ins and outs on almost every scene yeah just some some of those the the creeping develops and there's always something just just a beautiful and it just adds or a, a, a there's just a little lift it's just a a, a camera dynamic i think mm. that that adds pace to to it all the time which is just beautiful yeah. um let's do another question um what are the specific reasons to have more than one dp is it just schedule based or is it i mean was that always a plan to have more than to, to have it broken up because it, it varies doesn't it on different shows well it sort of it comes down to delivery really you know the the pro on a on a multi on an episodic series the the production is tied down to a delivery date um 
and it's very tight with they want to get the show broadcast as quickly as they can so that they're not spending more money than they need to. Um, and if you have one director and one director of photography, it's impossible for the editor to get working until you finish filming. So you could be filming a six part series for, you know, a, a hundred days uh, and, and then you'd have another three or four months of editing. Whereas if you've got two DPs and, and, and directors, then the, they're overlapping and the turnaround is much quicker. And also the directors, the, each director can enjoy more prep time with the directors of photography if, mm. they're, um, if, they're, if they're not uh, having to jump straight from one, yeah. one director to another. More if you don't have more than one DOP then, uh, sorry, more than one um, director then, and DOP, they, they just simply don't get any prep time. Yeah. So um, once you've established that you're going to have more than one director in order for them to be able to prep with their team, um, it just kind of ends up being that way. Um, yes, it's, right. fairly, it's fairly common, but it does go the other way. I mean, the show that I was working on up until we were, stop working uh, i was doing line of duty and i'm the only director of i'm the sole dp on that and you know i feel quite guilty for the other director i feel quite bad for the other directors because they just inherit me without any say in the matter and and i don't get to spend any time with them a couple mm. of days tech recce's and then straight into it so mm. it's not i don't necessarily think it's the best way of doing it i think alternating dps is is, is a tried and tested formula that works very well it's efficient it's quick and creatively i think it offers up a, a lot more more benefits very good i think that yes that bears out doesn't it i mean it, it's um it, as long as it it does feel like i mean did you get that from the producers as well julian in terms of or there being a show runner i mean there still had to be a a, a, a sort of an umbrella creative over the top of it because otherwise things you know, we talked about that about people um, willingly collaborating. But how? how so in, we could jump to the grade. I mean, did did you get to grade what Tim shot, or did it? Did, or or no, did you? Uh, no, absolutely not. So the way it works is, in, you know, I will grade the, um, you know, the the episodes I've set it up with. Um, so if you like, there is a there is a look established. And just as in the process of making the photography your own thing, um, you know, there will be things that, you know, as Tim's been explaining, that, that the way he builds the look himself, what you'll then want to do in the grade with that is, is probably going to be different to what I will do. But having said that, you have a person and a team of people who are across the grade. And as my involvement in the show has increased, I've been... Yes, definitely more and more across that, and more, more a part of it. But Gareth, if you like, is the you know um, the person who will um, know instinctively you know where things need to knit together a little bit. Um, the execs will have a say in that too, and to some extent, I get asked these days, um, you know, if I'm happy with the grade and seeing across it. But um, you know, individual DOPs and director teams will absolutely grade their own work, and that's not something I'll be a part of. Mm. Did you, were you doing so? In terms of the, the the turnaround of that, were you doing? Would you have daily? Did you have dailies 
like that were that were coloured dailies, or were you not? It wasn't that fast. No, to turn around. no, it was after have, editorial. Yeah, yeah, it was after editorial. Um, occasionally, if there was something we wanted to test out, or if there was something there was a concern over, we would we would have a little trial grade. And mm. the first series, we did a little bit of that. We had a few um, bits and pieces, a few scenes, um, sort of trial graded, so everyone could see the direction of travel and so yeah, okay, this is working. Very good. Uh, somebody, uh, Hunter Daly says, which you just, you can, very quick, is so what is the pace you have to light and shoot on an average day? What's your, what was your kind of, your, your, your page count? I mean, that's a, another eternal question. Um, what's your, what was your page count, roughly? It really varies. And, you know, if you're doing lots of complex action, um, along the lines of the sort of things Tim was describing earlier with car chases and things, then you're clearly going to shoot a lot less pages. And you know the, the schedule worked out by clever ADs according um, according to those needs. Um, I mean, as a very very broad brushstrokes average, four four and a half pages a day is what's expected. Um, but that doesn't mean that there aren't days when we film six, um, and other days when we film one and a half. Yeah. And it, it really depends. But in general, you know, it is it's a big show, but it's still a you know it's a television drama series in which we have to move pretty quick. And we may be in locations where we're very limited for time as well. Um, so, yeah, we don't get huge amounts of time to light um, and to shoot. We just have to crack on a bit. Yeah. I mean, I tend to not, you know, page count is, is it, I tend not to look so much at the page count, more at the number of strips mm. and the number of, um, number of uh, cast in each scene. If it's, mm. you know, if you've got seven or eight strips on a day, then you know you're, you, you're, going to be really pushing it and then if you've got you know if you've got five or six principles in a scene it could be a three-page scene but it's going to take a long time to shoot because of the, all the coverage you're, you'll need to do but hmm. um, yes there's the there's the television schedules that are, are sort of impossible really unless you know what you're doing and you know hmm. all the ways to get around it and and uh, that comes from being prepared a is being prepared mm. and b is having absolute trust and faith in the people around you your gaffer mm. and your gaffer and your operator mainly your gaffer to get the sets lit and your operator to make sure you can get the shot done in one maybe two takes and i'm yes. kidding if we do have enough budget and scale to be able to do quite a lot of pre-lighting and pre-rigging yeah so we will you know plan that out and yeah. that's always money well spent yeah, yeah. We'll arrive with a lot of those things having been done. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, was there and uh, was there a lot of VFX work? And how did you um, how do you incorporate that in? Yes, in there is there is quite a lot of VFX work in the show in general. Um, I mean, often very small scale, um, just little bits of enhancements and additions. Um, one of the things that we um, quite quickly decided was the way we wanted to go. Um, after testing a few things, the first series was if people get shot, that we don't do squibs. Um, and, and I have to say that I think that's a really, really good call because squibs don't really look, I think, um, the way, you know, real life would in, in with those things happening. And um, so it saves time. It mm. saves huge amounts of hassle for the uh, costume and makeup departments. Uh, so we did lots and lots of small VFX uh, that were very, very helpful. But we'd also, you know, add in things, for example, 
Uh, we have a Russian prison towards the end of the first series. We filmed an amazing um, exterior location in Romania. We had big watchtowers all around the outer perimeter. And we then shot all of the interiors at Reading Jail, which looked nothing like it. And so we were able to VFX the watchtowers in and you know, it's those kinds of things. You, but you, but you, did you know you were going to do that in prep so you could shoot a plate that was that was going to fit that in? And... Oh yeah, uh, yes, mostly. I mean, there there were some things that evolved, and we just decided to you know to, to add them later, or they were needed. Um, but in general, yes, we we planned for most of them. It's always that little bit of tidy up, or that little bit of co uh, a convincer on a wide, like you say, mm. where you just you can add those things where you don't suffer from a lot of parallax, where you can even you know you can be doing a big arm lift and find, you know, to establish somewhere, and actually in the distance, you can do those little bit of tiny yeah. convincers actually that you would just never get. So you can't. It's, it's not about going to a location. Mm. So it's always worth. Mm that's that outlay isn't it or tidying something up you know if you're you, because you can't it's like working with period stuff you can't always find some way that's exactly so you have to take some aerials out and you have to take some road signs or something it's always it's, it's the little bits that are often the most effective mm. i yeah. guess if you're going to romania then you need to you know production design can only put so much russia onto Romania I mean it's architecture exactly so there's always a lot of cleanup and and um, it feels as when we're going through the show like the VFX uh, side of things is not super heavy generally mm. um, apart from one or two set pieces maybe um, by the time you get to the end of a series um, you start to realize there's quite a study of the, the things you've been talking about but yeah yeah <laughs> and that, and I got to say having um, having such a good grader Gareth Spensley and I've worked with Gareth a tremendous amount over the years he'll he'll do stuff in the grade that you'd often have to go and sort out in the online or even have a you know spend money on vfx he has a a huge library of backgrounds and skies and all sorts of things that he'll multi-layer onto an image and transform mm. it completely and mm -hmm. give you a give you give you a picture that would have required a lot of paint work done to Yes. And, uh, He's also got a very, very canny eye for making a plate where there is none. Yeah. <laughs> find, um, he'll find something in the footage that you shot. He'll have noticed something through a window, not necessarily even in the scene you're doing. And he'll, um, he'll, he'll do something miraculous with it. Yeah. To, to give you that little bit of extra detail and depth. He is a treasure, isn't he? I've worked with him twice and he's done miraculous stuff. That you, yeah, like exactly. you say, you'd need a, you'd need a flame artist for, and he would, uh, he would just grab, like, grab a sky and replace it and track it and do some. Absolutely, and, and he's absolutely a, a really big part of the the way the show mm. works. Mm. That's Gareth Spensley at Molinaires, everyone. What a <laughs> lovely man. Other colorists are available, of course. Um, <laughs> uh, we just do a couple more questions. Um, how come this is it's sort of interesting but harking back to the to the widescreen question mm. i mean obviously with uh with, with streamers and with a lot of digital channels and uh, um uh, i mean sorry streamers um um it's still a kind of a shying away from even the way that tv is becoming more cinematic you know i guess is a is a, a sort of catchword but um, why, how come there was that resistance to, to go widescreen? Would have that not given it that little twist of, 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 of cinema and drama 
you know, however unconscious. Um, do you think well, it suffered um, from that or? I would certainly say yes. That's why, because everybody watches stuff on this. No, they don't. <laughs> well, that's what the um, American, in America, they do. Right. In, in, yeah, in I don't feel I can answer the question very effectively. That's BBC America. Yeah. Sorry, Tim. Yeah, I was just going to say, we, we lobbied hard and we made a case for um, mm. a wider screen format. Mm. Um, not necessarily super wide, but we offered up various options mm. and gave, you know, made the case. Um, and we didn't really have a, a big exchange of ideas about it. We were just told, thank you for the, the suggestion, but it's not mm. what we're looking for. And, you know, I think there are all kinds of, uh, you know, as Tim was alluding to, some, some practical hard-headed reasons. Um, for that and you know the show very quickly became shot in the format it is and it works and mm -hmm. is it what oh, series one was was 16-9 right is it yeah. has it gone to 2-1 now no it's remained 16-9 nope. yeah right. yeah and um, right. each time each time I embark on a series I've uh, revisited the question and received the same answer so far <laughs> I mean there's You're still a big <laughs> yeah, there's a big swathe of the viewing public who feel cheated if there's if the every it's missing every, every bit you know if the if the picture is not filling every single bit of your television screen, mm. um, well, and the I broadcasters think... you know they have to respect that. Yeah. yeah. Um. Still one more question. Um. Lots of people saying good morning. They must be in uh, far-flung places in the, on the other side of the world. Um, um, so just briefly and without any reveals, um, how has um, how was season three for for, for you, uh, Julian? And how did did it differ at all for um, from the other two? Is that you know how? Does it feel like this an evolution? Obviously, without doing any, we're yes, not interested I, I in any spoilers. spoilers. Um, um, yes, there is an evolution. There's undoubtedly mm. evolution in in all in all areas. You know, in, in in the writing and where the story is going, but in in what what I've been doing and what the team has been doing, um, it's a gentle evolution in in the cinematography. I would say, you know, we we've we've kept the grammar and the language. We're still um, shooting. Um, on the LF and um, using K35s. This time we had a production set of DNAs and threw in a few new lenses as well. Um, but um, yeah, the, the style absolutely has evolved um, with more developing shots and also the things that um, new directors bring. And we've had new directors, um, both in the second and third series. And they, they, you know, they, they bring freshness and ideas and things they want to do. And some episodes for people to look forward to that definitely take us places that um you know we perhaps wouldn't expect to see fantastic well um there's there was a, there was a new episode out last night i believe was there not uh yeah yes was it last night so it's it's being released being released in yes, every monday today yeah. Yeah, well, well it's being released it's terribly old-fashioned being released one episode at a time which is very which is i think is cool it makes it event TV, people get to, you know, know when it's coming and they get one at a time. So it gets eked out. And I like yeah, that. I think, I think I'm right in saying that's partly because of the circumstances we all find ourselves in changing yeah, yeah. things. And the, the, the transmission date was brought forward a bit. 
and um, I think you know they're, they're literally still getting everything finished as we go along. Mm. So right, right. Tight turnaround. So I don't think it was as possible to box set it all on day one. Right. Well, uh, I think it's been it's, it's clearly been a t an enormously successful uh, uh, a piece of work for for both of you, and I thank you so much for joining me. And I hope everyone, hope we've got enough questions in there. I think we just by chatting on, I think we covered most things that people have asked. So hopefully, um, hopefully we've answered your questions. Sure, Thank you so fun. much, Julian Court BSC and Tim Palmer BSC for your amazing work on Killing Eve. Well, Thank, Thank you, you. Laurie. It's been really good fun. It's been nice. Yeah, it's been great. No, wicked. Thank and you so much. Look forward to the rest of the new series. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, enjoy it. Tune in. Brilliant. Thank you ever so much, everybody. Uh, and we, uh, we, we will see you next time. Thank you, BAFTA, for having us. And, uh, so, and so in association with the BSC, that was our first BAFTA BSC masterclass. Thank you. Thank you, chaps. See you Thank soon. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you. Thanks, Lloyd. Thanks for joining us. And remember, you can listen to previous BAFTA sessions and podcasts at guru.bafta.org.